The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 15th chapter. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Which one of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise you, Lord Christ. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. There are times, I think, when Jesus' parables really don't make a whole lot of sense. Of course, they're not really supposed to make a lot of sense to us because they actually say more about God than they say about us. Many of his parables convey the free and gracious love that God has for sinners, and that will often not follow the laws of logic or even laws of narrative. For example, Jesus will not only use humor, humor rather, and pathos, but he'll use exaggeration and rhetorical questions. The first parable in Luke 15, for example, is built on a rhetorical question, the kind of question to which the answer is obviously yes. The use of such a rhetorical question is used to demonstrate the folly of the issue at hand. Jesus asks, Which one of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? Now, admittedly, I don't know a lot about shepherding, but I think that if there were some shepherds in the audience, they might look at one another and say, well, actually, none of us would do that. None of us would leave our sheep in the wilderness to seek one lost sheep. Now, maybe if there was a pin nearby or another shepherd where they could mingle their sheep uh, and they could safely stow the sheep, then they might go certainly and look for that sheep. I mean, it did have value. But unless they could uh, do something like that to just leave them out in the open where they then could wander off, I'm not sure how many shepherds, in fact, would do that at all. Gaining one sheep at the cost of 99 seems like a pretty bad deal. Uh, there's no telling what uh, direction the sheep would have gone. They have a terrible sense of direction. Uh, so you would literally have to search it using concentric circles. That's how they would have to find the sheep. You go this way, there's, there's no telling. So there was a, a strategy involved here. 
But as the text makes clear, the sheep or the shepherd would have to leave them in the wilderness. So if you thought chasing down one sheep was bad, try chasing down a hundred. But of course, the folly, I think, really is the point. Logic is irrelevant. The point isn't to debate first century shepherding uh, standard operating procedure. The parable is about a God who seeks the lost, a God who seeks sinners. Now, perhaps by our point in Christian history, as spoiled as we have become, thanks in part to the work of the reformers and our own modern sensibilities that frankly celebrate cheap grace and unconditional love, we take a story like this for granted. But this parable would have been a desperately needed reframing for uh, Jesus' audience. It was taken as a, a given that man's work was to be acceptable before God. It was assumed that man was to pursue God, to make the first move, to clean himself up and to make himself sufficiently presentable to God. It's like going on a first date. You know, you wear clean clothes and you get a haircut and you put on some perfume or whatever. You know, man was to go to God, be acceptable, and then God would respond in kind. Indeed, even within Christianity and certainly in non-Christian religions, this is still how man's relationship to God is often understood. Man pursues God with the hope of being worthy. Hence the controversy that begins this whole series of parables about lost things. You have the sheep, then the coin, then the prodigal son. Uh, the controversy was that Jesus was, in fact, eating with sinners and tax collectors. How could he hope to present himself before God as being worthy if he was you know, making himself unclean with these terrible people? And so Jesus, therefore, turns the tables uh, on this entire paradigm he says, you know, in fact, you are not the pursuer of God, but rather God is the pursuer of you. So the good news is that God sincerely desires to find us, to save us, to rescue us from our wayward ways. But this parable <clears throat> does say something about man that the careful here would have noticed and might have taken offense at. While we all agree that it's well and good that God has been portrayed as a loving and forgiving judge, man, well, has been put in his place. He is compared to a sheep. Now, sheep, of course, have their bright spots. For example, the, the sheep hear the voice of the shepherd. It's pretty amazing, really, how you can have commingled flocks of sheep. And when one shepherd goes one way and another shepherd goes one way, the, the sheep follow the voice of their own shepherd. So they're not completely dumb, but they're pretty dumb. And if free to roam, if free to roam, hence the need for our, our beloved border collies, right? They would make a mess of their own lives, and they wouldn't even realize it. And that's you. That's me. We are not the put-together saints that we think we see in the mirror. 
You are, or at least at one point were, a lost sheep who needed to be saved. And a savvy hearer of this parable should have heard that too. And they probably would have taken offense at it. Another element to these parables, and again the third one which accompanies these in a series, the prodigal son, is that whenever the lost sheep or coin or son are found and returned home, there's always a party. Right? He says, hey, I've, I've found the lost sheep I was looking for, celebrate with me. Or the woman sweeps the house and finds the coin and invites her friends over and says, party with me. I found the thing that was lost. Now, if anything, I don't think I'd want the neighborhood to know how many silver coins I had, that I had lost one, that I maybe am not trustworthy with my coins, you know. Um, but, hey, a party is worthy to be had because this is about the nature of God and the way that God seeks us and the way that joy is the result of the lost thing being found. It, it answers the age-old question, perhaps, of, uh, about uh, angels that may have been studied in great detail during the Middle Ages. Not how many angels can fit on the head of a pin, but do angels like to party? And the answer is yes. Yes, in fact, they do. Whenever a wayward sinner has been found by God. So to the person who is afraid that their sins are too great for God, this parable says, no, God is seeking you out. He is looking for you. Yes, even you. Heed the voice of the good shepherd. Let him take you home as he so desires to do. Or, I suppose... You, being the free agent human being that you are, have the right to wander the earth, to fundamentally be alone, having decided that you don't need the shepherd and you don't need the rest of the flock. In the end, I think you'll find yourself without any hope at all, mad at the very flock that you left behind and mad at the very shepherd that you have rejected. This week, a resident of uh, this neighborhood stopped by while I was doing uh, my outreach. And initially, she was quite upset with my display. In fact, she was driving by. She yelled something out the window, and I said, I'd love to talk to you, but please come have a seat so we can talk. And to my surprise, she did. Parked her car, walked over. We had a long conversation. But essentially, she, she said, well, you Christians, this is the problem with all you evangelicals. You want to tell everyone else how to live, and you're so judgmental, which, of course, was judgmental language coming from her. And I can't possibly recite the entire conversation, which was both long and civil. But I was able to elicit this confession because I wanted her to say what she really believed she argued that if children could not be born into ideal circumstances, which were her own standards, right, then they probably should not be born at all because basically this world was a terrible place. It was irredeemable. It would always be a terrible place, and there was really no hope that it would ever get better. Now, I'm summarizing, but that was the basic gist of things. 
I suggested, in fact, that she had become hopeless, that she had embraced a hopeless view of the world. Uh, she had probably accepted a number of apocalyptic myths, uh, like uh, you know, climate disasters or population bombs or an imminent Handmaid's Tale-style theocracy that had led her to be so hopeless. Having given up on God, she had also given up on any hope of redemption, of a better world, or if we're really being honest, a good reason to live. To her credit, she did not disagree with my diagnosis. She said, yeah, I think you're probably right about all of that. What began as a confrontation ended up being a thoughtful conversation of give and take about where hope could be found. Now, of course, I invited her to church, and I'm hoping that in such an invitation she will not hear my voice, but the voice of her shepherd who is looking for her and calling her to the flock, calling her back to hope out of nihilism and doom and into new life and hope. Time will tell, and please understand, I'm not picking on her. I care about her. I want the very best for her. I'm simply using that conversation as an example of where I think many people, in fact, have found themselves in our own day. In fact, my newsletter article this month was kind of about that, about sort of lost souls who blame evangelicals for all the problems in the world. <laughs> and I'm going, do you know any evangelicals? Do you know the contributions that they, that they make to our society quietly without any desire for recognition? But many people do, in fact, find themselves alone. They're, they're, they're feeling their way through the wilderness. It's not an uncommon place at all for our friends and neighbors. As we have been found, may God so find them. And may God give us his spirit that we would never stray, that we would remain in the flock until the last day. For we are no better than anyone on the outside. The only difference is that we have been found and we have been brought home by the shepherd. Amen.